to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willis, Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds and souls. Many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. I have two great guests joining me today. First up is Chess Rudder. Chess is an artist and illustrator whose work I admire. She designed a string of record covers for the Light in the Attic label, including the superb country funk compilations. She's also illustrated and published a book called I'm Bored, and designed shirts and clothing, often with a music theme. Let's hear what Chess has to say about her art and some of her favorite music. <laughs> Thank you so much for for sitting down with me today and, and talk about your your art and your connection uh, to music. Um, when I conceived my podcast, I always wanted to talk about the intersection of the different arts or music and different different other topics. And to me, you like like not that many other people found such a great way to combine your art of illustra illustration and music. So maybe we'll just start kind of how I got aware of you and that was through two compilation records that Light in the Attic put out called Country Funk. Can you talk a little bit about how that project came about? Sure. Um, gosh, uh, I would say, well, Zach Howie, um, is uh, one of my best friends and, and he sort of always was making these mixes of the country funk genre. We used to call them uh, boot cuts, I think he used to call them. Um, and for, for many years, and I know that uh, Matt loved them and they sort of came together and, and because we were all close friends, it was sort of, and, and this was obviously a genre that's close to my heart. It was sort of a organic way to say, hey, you know, can you scribble these icons for, for this project? And, and it was very, it was all very natural. And um, yeah, that's kind of how it came together. So. Yeah. You, you grew up in Brooklyn, in New York? Yeah, I grew up in Long Island, but I was in New York. For, I was living in New York for all my life. Um, the last couple of years I was there was in Brooklyn. Um, and it's it's funny to me to look at these records because uh, moving to California you get so much space. But I'm looking at these. And I'm just remembering I was in the tiniest 
uh, apartment when I made these. <laughs> so it's, it's funny because I, I'm trying to picture my process and, and doing all these things sort of super late into the night, um, you know, bottles of wine in, drawing all these all these characters. And, and now it's like in L.A., you go to sleep early and you have space and it's a lot of light and it's a <laughs> different experience drawing. So uh, looking at these, it, it reminds me of those times. Yeah. How did you initially kind of grow a passion for art and, and illustration? How, how did that get started? Well, I, I, would, I will say that my father was a huge record head, and he was very into um, Lord of the Rings and, and illustrated album covers, and so that was sort of my first uh, connection with them. Um, my dad... Uh, unfortunately got sick when I was very young and sort of my communication with him was through his records and cartoons and it was music and art it was like comic books and records and the Muppets and records like visual strong visuals and music and it was always just this companion that became a friend and I remember being really young and being affected by music really early. Like, you know, when you're young and you hear something that's super gutting and that sort of correlation when you're like six years old, but you want to hold your hand to your heart because you felt something, but music does that. And I think visuals do that too. And it's really nice to have both. Yeah. And you started talking a little bit about record collection. And I, I always believed that a record collection tells a lot about the owner. What do you think does your record collection tell about you? Oh. <laughs> it's a hard question, um, I guess. Um, I think, well, my record collection definitely is an homage to the past. I mean, it, it definitely is very consistent in the decades of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, I, I don't have a ton of contemporary albums. Um, so maybe that says something about me. I'm a nostalgic head. And um, for some reason, I just was connected to older records. And there was a certain type of warmth. I'm an old soul. And maybe that's something that's connected. I have lots of different genres. I have a huge weirdo gonzo section. I love, like the old Rhino records, like, you know, Dr. Demento to, you know, super psych stuff to, you know, Bridget St. John and, you know, Rory Yanch, you know, heavy folk. And so it goes, it's just, it's, it's a lot of, um, it's an ode to the past a little bit. Yeah. What, what role does the record cover play in you deciding if you wanted to buy it? Um, a lot. Um, I definitely was interested in a lot of records initially from the cover. Um, I figured it's gotta have good, it's gotta be something because they had good taste to have good art direction. <laughs> um, but I always loved collecting like, uh, that label Vertigo where they had all those Marcus Keefe album covers. I knew I trusted the cover so much. I knew that there had to be some goodness coming out of these. Um, 
I love like anything like R. Crumb did album art for or uh, trying to think. Um, yeah, there were certain labels that had very impressive art direction that I always knew. I always just wanted to collect them all because it was there was a trust there from their taste. Yeah, I uh, I feel the same in many ways. I love Blue Note Records, yeah. although it was more photography, mm -hmm. but oh, they sure. just had a look that just really well represented represented the content too. Mm -hmm. And I always like there's certain records that I love, but there's like some record covers like this record does not look the way it sounds. Yeah. And I think there's an art to that connection. And I'm always trying with my label trying to, to kind of capture the sound. And I might sometimes, you know, and I'm not an arts person myself, so I obviously need a lot of help. <laughs> but that's kind of always a goal of mine. And I might not always, you know, achieve it, but it's so important. And one thing that I love is like going through like the dollar bin at the used record store. Yeah. And obviously I'll try to find a record to recognize or a record that had players on it that, that I admire. But sometimes I just go through and it's like, this is just stunning. I just want to check it out yeah. because of its visual value too. So I, I really, I can connect to that too. One thing I collect a lot of, and especially since I moved here, is uh, William, do you know who William Stout is? No, um, I don't. There's a label in the 70s called Trademark of Quality, and it was bootlegs of live records, and uh, totally unofficial, but this artist, William Stout, would do interpretations illustrated of the Rolling Stones or Neil Young, all, all as animals or pigs or birds or... Um, they're super cool, um, really expensive. I have to eat peanut butter and jelly for a week after I buy one. But I, no matter, I this it's it's one instance where I'm buying it for the covers and maybe it's their live bootlegs. They're not really an enjoyable experience to listen to. They probably were at the time because you know it was a live show and gaining access to hearing that. But but that's one instance where I'm spending a lot of money on the covers and maybe not as much as the sound. Yeah. Besides uh, creating record covers, you do also a lot of you know shirts and different things. And since a lot of people, I assume, listening to this podcast, they kind of have a love for Muscle Shoals music. So would you mind sharing how the Spooner Oldham socks came about? Oh, for sure. Well, I was, um, I had a few years where I was working at Light Meonic Records, and that's when I met um, Roxanne Oldham, and um, she was uh, a fan of Rotter and Friends, my t-shirt line. And Roxette, for people who don't know, is Spoonish style. Yes, and um, so, and I knew Roxanne's husband, Mark, and um, from working in the music industry, and um, so again, it was one of those natural phone calls where it was like, well, I'd really love for you to draw my dad and this would be really fun. And originally the drawing was for t-shirts, but she, I think that she came across this cool company that printed socks and it was like, well, it'd be really cool to have Spooner socks. <laughs> That's how it came about. Yeah, and Light in the Attic also reissued his potluck. Pot yes, and that's how I reconnected with uh, Roxanne for that, for that reissue. Yeah, and another project you recently worked on is your own 
illustrated book. Yep. It's called I'm Bored yeah. by Jess Rudder. And would you mind sharing a little bit how this book came about, what a genesis of them was? Yeah, I, I, I guess I just wanted to do a collection. I'm so known for my music-related artwork um, that I guess I wanted to work on something that was really personal and from the heart. And yes, of course, music always is a companion to that, but I wanted to do something that was a little bit just really a personal work about daily life salvation. Yeah, and I, I read somewhere too, kind of preparing for the podcast, that in many ways it's like everybody's kind of a little bit on their phone and just kind of, and that, that I'm bored, you know, is kind of connected to just kind of relief from that, I guess. Yeah, I think I, I was thinking that, well, first of all, I'm so overstimulated and saturated that I'm always going like, oh, so bored, because it's almost like become jaded because there's so much going on that it's just, you always are ready for the next thing, so you're almost bored from that. And then I also thought that being bored is actually a really sacred, beautiful thing these days, because we're never bored. So your creativity and imagination actually come from being bored. So where is that? And, and it's all sort of a struggle to get day by day with all of these things. And I think that uh, that's sort of, it's a joke on board, this, the title. Um, some people think it's a kid's book, but it's not. It's actually a really emotional, well, it comes from an emotional adult mindset where it's, what are we doing here? How are we, how are we getting by? Yeah, and it's it's like on the hat and beard press, mm -hmm. and people I guess can get it anywhere. They can get it yeah. by going through your website, and that's chessrotter.com. You can do that, yeah. Amazon, all that jazz. <laughs> yeah. So a few years ago, you moved to LA, and mm -hmm. how did that relocation affect or change your creative process? I found that L.A. had a strong sense of nostalgia. I found that my artwork was being, um, there was more of a, a response here to my artwork. Um, obviously, you know, instantly connecting with the Light in the Attic folk. Um, and uh, I just found there was a community here that, appreciated all the things I was preaching back in New York where New York it was always like what's the next thing where I was like okay well what do we look at as a reference for the next thing and I think I found that more here I love going to you know as we were talking earlier like I love going into time machine restaurants I love going to find like crazy vintage t-shirts because I'm such a I collect obviously vintage music shirts um, the William Stout record covers. I, I wasn't finding that in New York, and if I was finding that, it was extremely expensive and hard to attain. Whereas I found the daily life here, you could really bring what I love into the daily, if that makes any sense. It sure does, and, and kind of the reason why I'm asking too is, a lot of people ask me, so why the Muscle Shoals sound? Why did that 
you know, get created there. And uh, a lot of people say, well, it's in the water and they like mythology, obviously, because it may, always makes a good story. And I'm sure there's a point there, too. But I feel that different locations have, like, different grooves. Yes. Just kind of the way a city feels, the way people talk, the way they move, and just kind of the look, I guess, too. And I think in many ways that's how I explain why Muscle Shoals sounds like that because it seems like the city and the area has that groove and it just kind of gets reflected in the music. Yes. And I guess in, in a similar way you experience that. Too. It's Yeah, it's true. It, but it's weird because in New York there was... I miss the night. I don't get the night here like I did in New York. And I think that that's an interesting adjustment because my creative brain usually I'm so used to my whole life having having that at night and that intimate experience and um, walking at night and I don't have that as much in LA it's like okay the sun how do I deal with this um, but that said um, for the most part I, I think it, it it holds a really nice place of preservation of culture that I think is really warm yeah and uh, another thing that uh, interests me it's and in my way to, you know to producing records kind of I love the way they used to produce records in the you know 50s through the 70s mm -hmm. and all analog and you get a band in the studio and you kind of create it there and it's kind of that analog mindset if you yeah. will but then there's the digital wor world that in many ways at the same time, as much as it might take some of that warmth, but it might help in certain ways. In my world, is editing becomes more convenient. Sure. Being able to take files from one city to another city, uh, make things easier. How have you embraced like digital world? I saw online that besides, I guess, using a pencil or, or a pen to create, you also have a way to digitally create your own. I know. I became, I, I started digital drawing, and it's really changed my life. I mean, I use a Cintiq now, and um, the process uh, is just so much easier. Maybe specifically for what I'm doing, but um, I just... My goal is to make it look as analog as possible. I don't want it to look like digital drawing, but um, for time reasons and when you have a lot of projects or when you're making, for me, like comics or whatever, I can't believe how it slices the time. And I feel like my drawings look a little bit more um, the way I've intended them to look, um, which is really nice. And But... Uh, it was a little bit of an adjustment, but I have to say that for someone that was against it for so long, I mean, it saved my life. So, um, my room looks analog, and then I have this like tablet, <laughs> but but it's great. Yeah. So, just kind of circling back to music, do you have any go-to records or go-to artists you, that seem to kind of circle back into your life and it, you know whenever you want to feel something in particular or you want to revisit a certain time that you you pull them out periodically do you have anything that comes to mind yeah uh this is always a tough one i 
I really love John Martin's Solid Air. It's like one of my favorite records of all time. Um, I love Judy Sill. I love anything Neil Young. I love, um, oh my God, I'm, I can I can go on for a long time, but um, uh, yeah, those, uh, those are very often go-to. Uh, Cat Stevens, I love. Uh, Foreigner Suite is one of my favorite records. And you got to work on some Cat Stevens-related stuff, too. Can you yeah, talk that a little was bit like about a, that? That was my dream project. It was amazing. We did it really, really fast. But um, And that was a 45 for Thermite Records? Yep, we did a 45, and then I did all the merch for his um, 50th anniversary tour, where he first came back to the States, and it had been quite some time. Um, and that was a really special moment because my mother, her favorite record is Foreigner Suite. And it's, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the record, but yeah. one side is a 20, it was like an 18, 20 minute song called Foreigner Suite. Um, and that was like, I had had so much music influence from my dad. This was like the one thing where my mom would share with me her, how important this particular song was to her. And, it, you know, she take me through it and talk about you know the moments in the song oh wait wait for this moment it's gonna it's gonna get you you know then she'd cry a part of the song so this whole like 20 minute thing but I've always had this you know with me so we were able I was able to take her to the show in New York um, which was this incredible full circle thing for me and for her as you know being my mother and now her daughter is taking her to see Yusuf um, and we got to meet him backstage, and she got to tell him how important the song was to her. And that was like, you know, one of the highlights of my career and, and life, just, just seeing how this musical moment um, and how important records can affect people. And uh, apparently, uh, Yusuf didn't play Farner Sweet that night because it was too long. <laughs> but, uh, but it was it was really cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking your time and talking to me. And uh, thanks for having sharing me. Sharing your passionate stories and uh, thanks for hosting me at your house. I don't take that for granted by any means. So I just would like to wish you all the best with all your future endeavors. Oh, and, I'm so uh, happy you guys came. I hope our uh, our path will cross again. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up is Teddy Morgan. Teddy is a producer, engineer, songwriter, and musician who I got to know through working at Creative Workshop Recording Studio here in Nashville. Teddy released a handful of blues and roots albums as an artist before branching out as a producer. He's worked with John Oates of Hall and & Oates and actor Kevin Costner, among many others. Teddy, welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thanks for being my guest today. No, it's a pleasure to be here. We've both been working at, at and around Creative Workshop Recording Studio here in Nashville. You have your own setup here, and uh, you've been here longer than I have, but over the last five or six years, we've had a lot lot of chances to talk to each other but never really as in depth as I hope we're gonna do now and uh, you uh, 
you grew up in Minneapolis. I did. What's some of your earliest memories of being around music? Well, my mom had all different kinds of music available. And I remember car rides, you know, uh, long car rides to Grandma in North Dakota. It was, uh, was it Doug Kershaw? I remember that was some of my favorite stuff. I remember rediscovering him in the 20s, like Louisiana Man. And, uh, but it, it was all over from blues to jazz to, you know, singer songwriter to rock and roll, 60s rock and roll. Um, and, and that's honestly, uh, the, 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 the really, you know, the Bob Dylan records, um, and then later the blues records that I found, like, she had a Lightning Hopkins record, and I knew in ninth grade I had to write a report on something, and I was originally going to write it on, on blues, and then I found a Lightning Hopkins record, and as as you know, so many of those records released in the in the sixties and seventies um, had these amazing liner notes. You could get a whole story, you know, pre-internet. Obviously, this is the this is the early eighties, and. Um, and reading Lightning Hopkins' story and listening to his music, like, man, that was one of my first guitar heroes. I mean, I had so many guitar heroes, honestly. But guitar, like, spoke to me. You know, I played different instruments as a kid, and one day somehow, uh, you know, just banged on drums, or somehow there was a bass. But when I started really learning guitar chords, that, that kind of changed, changed everything. Did you, from there, get hooked up with some of the local blues players yes well when i i worked across I, I lived across the street from a little grocery store in a neighborhood a small a small little neighborhood in in minneapolis called the Bryn Mawr neighborhood and there was a little grocery store and i was 16 and i got a job there um you know just selling what people wanted to buy i was the clerk and um someone had told me a, a man named larry hayes worked in this uh, uh lived in this neighborhood and shopped there and I knew him from the band called Lamont Cranston, which was a really popular blues and R&B band that had been around since maybe 1971. And a great band, too. Yeah, great band, right? And they, and I actually saw them. My first concert my mom took me to was the Rolling Stones on the Tattoo You tour, and, and they opened up for the Rolling Stones. They, um, they, they grew to be signed by a major label. Um, they never had national success like they did locally, but they were huge locally. And so I knew who he was, and, and I said, hey, would you give me some guitar lessons? And I was a 16-year-old kid with long hair. He was like, well, I can't teach you any Eddie Van Halen. I remember saying that. I'm like, I don't want to learn Eddie Van Halen. I love the blues. And so I would go over once or twice a week, and, and, um, and he uh, taught me so many little, little things, Robert Lockwood licks, you know, because he played behind harmonica players. Uh, the the main guy Pat Hayes his brother played harmonica so they were obviously into little Walter and Sonny Boy Williamson and Jimmy Reed and so I would go home with like 30 records and listen to them and and I boy I got scolded once it was it was pretty it was pretty great for me um, not just for blues education but for music education um, when I came back and he asked, well, what do you think of this record? What do you think of this record? And then he asked, what do you think of the Jimmy Reed record? I'm like, oh, it was all right. It was kind of boring. 
honestly. And boy, he just lit into me in a gentle way. He was kind of a quiet guy. You know, he didn't yell at me, but he just said, boy, if you don't get that, you're just missing, you're missing the whole point of it all. Is basically what he said. And wow, you know, he was like, Eddie Taylor on guitar, that's some of the best guitar playing you'll ever hear, you know. And so he really kind of opened me up to that. Funny, years later, I um, ended up on, on Antone's records and and did a few tours backing up different people. And one of them was Lazy Lester, who was a Louisiana. He was on Accelo Records. J.D. Miller recorded him. He was um, very similar to, it was kind of like a Louisiana Jimmy Reed in some ways. Uh, just, you know, simple songs, really cool songs, melodies, like major melodies, you know, not like real aggressive blues, but like kind of almost pop blues, if you will, you know, like really cool melodies, that Louisiana thing. And, um, and the start of the tour, I was just doing me, which was uh, a little too much, you know. I would come time to solo, and I would just take off into Teddy World, wherever that might be at the moment. And he had a gentle way of saying, um, when you play with me, <laughs> I wish I could talk like him, Lazy Lester, he said, if you, if you think of a hot lick, don't play it. And, you know, so he got me to get behind what he was doing. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, this is blues. And, and, and blues can be, it's, you know, it, it, it's easy for people to forget it isn't just about solos. There are, there are songs and a feel and, and artists. And Lazy Lester was a real artist. So I don't know why I'm going off on this. But, but I guess going back to those uh, guitar lessons and life music lessons, talking to Larry, I really learned a lot about you framing a song and that and that never ends no matter what genre you're in yeah so you kind of learning from larry at that point and then how did did your performing career kind of okay get so then so this was when i was 16 and then i was just playing with my high school buddies and i since uh you know school was difficult for me because i moved out of my own when i was 16 as well so I was just kind of working at this little grocery store and playing guitar all night. Listen, I mean, I got so absorbed in, in, in chess records. Like, he got me on a path of really discovering, uh, just kind of going deep, you know, and then realizing the other thing he did was give me um, the, uh, the the fabulous Thunderbird's first record. And um, and I remember hearing that just blew my mind because I knew I was into Stevie Ray Vaughan at the time and and um, when I heard that first, I had no idea people were making blues like that. You know, just this like tough, simple, you know, this. this. So so the Thunderbirds, Kim Wilson, uh, that whole band was great. Keith Ferguson, Jimmy Vaughn, um, that. So anyway, so two years so here, I'm just absorbing this. I'm listening to the Fabulous Thunderbirds. I'm listening to Hubert Sumlin play on, on Holland Wolf Records. I'm like deep in it, you know, I'm, and... And then when I'm 18, I'm still working at the grocery store. Larry comes in and says, hey, I'm playing with my brother again. He had not been playing with Lamont Cranston. He's like, he needs a guitar player. I've been filling in. I'm like, that's awesome. I can't, can you get me into a bar? I'm only 18, you know? He's like, well, that's not really why I'm telling you this. Um, I was thinking maybe, you know, you could try out for the band. And wow, I was like, yeah, I, I would love to do that. So I just think to, I, re, I remember I saw Bob Dylan outside that uh, one night and that night I was after that show 
I was supposed to go uh, try out for Lamont Cranston at a bar and they let me in. That was a big deal because you could not get into bars. And so I was able to go up and play and it was just electric. You know, it was just like I felt this is it was easy. I wasn't even nervous. It was like on fire. You know, my heart was on fire. And um, and, you know, when you're 18 and you can play blues really well, it's always impressive or you can play any instrument. So so people kind of flipped, you know, and and um, seeing a young kid actually play blues really well. And and so I basically got the job. He kind of just kind of got worked in. Larry stayed around. But I had so much to learn. I could play a solo, you know, but like dynamics and like those guys really just helped me, you know. And sometimes really the rhythm in that pocket oh, is not necessarily the easier part, although it might be technically. Oh, easy. it's the harder part, you know, and understanding that, you know, when to turn down and when to. So it was a great education. So all of a sudden, you know, I go, I'm still working at the grocery store because I'm only getting like $40 a night because what they did is like I would play, um, you know, half a set. And then Larry would finish it and I'd watch it and learn. And then then he was like, okay, I think it's time for you to play. And I, I don't have time to do all these gigs anyway. So, you know, that's kind of how it started. And you mentioned a little earlier that eventually you got signed by Clifford, Clifford Antone uh, yeah. for, for his record label down in Austin. How, like from you getting that gig to you becoming an artist on Antone's records, how how did that happen? How did he discover you? I guess. Well, all right. So, so I'm eight. So I'm eighteen. I'm playing with Lamont Cranston, and we're touring some. We're you know going to Colorado and Nebraska and Iowa and I'm in Minneapolis. So we're kind of doing some regional stuff. And um, but I'm getting more and more and more just into like fifties blues. And there's a whole scene of people doing that. You know. Uh, the Thunderbirds had had their hits and and it was not all the original members and 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 they're still making money you know playing playing tough enough and stuff like that but at the same time Kim Wilson the singer of the band is is starting to like do like more traditional blues and you've got all these people Junior Watson one of my favorite guitar players ever is in California and then you've got you just got all these people playing this kind of James Harmon, you know, and yeah. that who I ended up playing with, you, you know, Ronnie Earl, like yeah, there's the all these labels, talks, you know, black, yeah, blues, you, yeah, the blacktop label and rounder records is releasing stuff and there's Antones. And, and so I'm more and more into that. And Lamont Cranston is still kind of a party band. They play some of that stuff, but like, I didn't want to, I just wanted to like get down, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to play like, you know, Walter Johnson stuff and just, uh, just really, I was so absorbed into that. And so when these musicians, pretty open community, when these musicians would come to town, they'd hear me or maybe I'd sit in with somebody, you know, and, and it's always, there's not that, always, there's not that many people into traditional blues. So word just kind of got out and I started getting calls one day, Kim Wilson called me and I didn't even think it was him. He was a hero. This is a guy from the Thunderbird saying, Hey, I would like to bring you down to um, Antone's to to play a weekend with me. Well, that was like a dream come true. So I go down there, I meet Clifford. I'm hanging out at Antone's. I'm playing with Sarah Brown and Derek O'Brien was on guitar and there was horns. And um, and I met Clifford. He said, "Well, why don't you come down here? I'm helping out this girl Sue Foley. You can come down here and you know." And I said, "I don't even want to." Um, 
I don't even I don't even sing. I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, well, think about it. In the meantime, I got an offer to move to California and play with James Harmon, who was like a 50s kind of blues, you know, just an interesting character. I like the music. So I went out there to California, lived with Junior Watson for a year. I'm, I think I'm 21 now. And that was an amazing blessing to live with Junior Watson, one of the coolest guitar players. Um, and so I did that for a year, playing with James Harmon, just absorbing, trying to learn, meeting so many great people, seeing great music. Um, I'm back in, we're playing Antones with James Harmon, and I meet Clifford again, and Clifford's like, the offer's still on the table if you ever want to come here. And so I just did it. You know, 22, I moved to Austin, and and just did temporary jobs, you know, trying to, trying to pay the bills, rehearsing, you know, working working it up and and that's kind of where the Antones thing happened eventually did a record got to play every Monday night um, before the house band and you know the 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 Moeller brothers were down there if anybody's heard of Johnny Moeller and his brother and like it, it was just a fun community it was a great time they ended up with the Thunderbirds way later yes too. they did yeah. yeah I saw them back in Switzerland backing up some some different different uh, oh I mean, he's great and so and the red devils were playing out in california in california and that was like johnny moeller's uh, friend from dallas yeah. like they so there were all these kind of young guys make chagger too oh, yeah exactly yeah. so like that was i wasn't like in la playing with the red devils but there was this whole the paladins you know all these kind of bands that were blues related that also had had a lot of influence from like 50s and 60s recorded blues yeah, and, and that all led to, but then like it, it kind of, I started, I liked when I was really when I was younger before I got into blues. I like like sixties. I like Bob Dylan, I, you know the Almond Brothers, some Jimi Hendrix, uh, but once I discovered like the guys that really made this the blues in the in the six in the fifties, I kind of forgot about all the sixties guys because I never liked the way they played blues. Honestly, I didn't like the way the Stones played the blues. I didn't like. Um, the way the Almond Brothers played the blues. I do now. I get it now. But I was like, well, this is not even new. They're just copying this. This is like way better. So I kind of forgot about all all the kind of rock and roll versions, you know, and of that. And, and slowly I kind of started getting into soul music and Louisiana music and started getting into songs, songs more. And then, um, boy, I went into a big soul thing. And I know you're into like, that Dan Pan record came out, um, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. Yeah. That was just incredible, you know. When was that, like? 94. 94. I mean, that changed my world. So I was listening to that and listening to old Otis Redding and, and, and then High Records. And I got to tour with um, Syl Johnson, who was on High Records for a while. And all these influences came in. And then, then like, somebody, I was playing music with Gerf Morlick's, uh in Austin, he worked with Lucinda Williams. He produced a few records. And so I started listening to her songs and they were amazing. And then Steve Earle, and then like people started hipping me to like all this kind of alt country that was going on at the time. Um, and that Sunvolt record came out, you know, and I, so, so my path was so narrow and focused on what was moving my heart. And I think that's important. You always got to go with what's moving your heart. But as I got as I got older, boy, it just you know, it's like 
I was able to take the focus back and see wow, it's all music. Yeah, and that reflected itself on the, on your records too. I guess all the first two one were pretty straight blues. Oh, records. very much so. Yeah. Then after that, it became more. I guess we would call it Americana now, but where some of those influences can certainly be heard. Uh, and you also around I guess around the same time you, you moved away from Austin How yeah that was a I mean you talk about a big influence in my life too so I'm in Austin um, and touring you know I'm in a van just touring all the time I'm touring so much that I don't even have a house you know I'm just living on the road basically I'll stay at hotels or stay with friends I got a P.O. box I'm a man without a home I'll just sleep in my van on the coast you know I'm, I'm loving life um and I just get settled back into Austin and I, I meet somebody that I fall in love with that lives in Tucson, Arizona. And I'd been hanging in Tucson a lot because I'd met a guy named Jeb Schoonover. And he hit, he's one of the guys that hit me to so much music, so much soul, alt country, you know, Graham Parsons, you know, just fill in the blank. He's, this is a man that just loves all music and has a huge record collection. So I'm hanging in Tucson. I meet somebody, fall in love. I mean, we fell in love. We got married. And it didn't make sense for her to move to Austin. I moved to Tucson, Arizona. And it's one of those things in, in life, which I think is important no matter what you do. It's like, everyone was like, what are you doing? You're moving to Tucson? That's not a music town. You, you should move to Nashville or stay in Austin or go to Los Angeles. And I tell you, Tucson was an amazing place. It's a, it's a great city. And then I discovered... These bands, Giant Sand and Calexico, these, I don't even know what you call them, art rock, just music, just beautiful music, no no definition. And um, and so Tucson was a, was, was a great landing place for a few years. And I also met a man named John Coyneman, and we wrote songs, and I produced an album for him. That led to the Kevin Costner stuff that I do, because yeah. they had a band in the 80s. And I also met a writer named Troy Olson, and we wrote a lot of songs. And I ended up co-producing his CD here in Nashville at Blackbird. I wasn't, I just was supposed to be here for 10 days, but it was like a natural fit. So I'm like, I got a dream come true. I'm working in one of the best studios in the world, working with great musicians um, right next door. How about that? Right next door to where I work now. And, and that was a game changer in my life. You know, here I am in Tucson, but that's how I got to Nashville. All the work was here. Vance Powell taught me so much. Obviously his career has taken off amazingly as a mixer and a producer and an all around great guy. So that Tucson actually led me here to Nashville. Was it in Arizona where you started engineering and producing? It is, it is. I. Before then, I, I really didn't care about the studio. The studio was just something you had to do so you could make a record, so you could tour. Like, I, I didn't like thinking about what I was singing or playing uh, over and over. I just wanted to get on stage, play it, and have it be in the universe forgotten, you know. Um, but I started recording at a studio called Wave Lab, and then and, and I had a great time working there and I was started getting into studio and it was more affordable than going to a studio in Austin. And um and this and, and also just seeing that Calexico recorded a lot, you know, like, oh, they just kinda try ideas, you know. That's it's okay to do that. You don't have to go in and be like out, you know, work for twelve hours for three days and be done. Like yeah. you can experiment. As a creative workshop. Yeah, a creative workshop, yeah. <laughs> if you will. Yes. And um 
And so I uh, thought about, well, how am I going to do this? I don't really want to do computer recording, but that made the most sense. So I bought like a Digio One, a, the, one of the early Pro Tools. I didn't even own a computer before then, you know, um, didn't do email. And then so I started like learning Pro Tools and then got more and more into it. And boy, it, it helped me along the way, because by the time then I um, worked on that record at Blackbird, it was, uh, you know, kind of knew what I was doing. I was familiar with the gear. I was like, I mean, the gear over there is amazing. Um, but, I, you know, I knew what mic to use on things. And then, of course, I learned so much from Vance. Yeah. So was that session over at, at Blackbird part of, like, your decision, you wanting to move here? It was. It was. Um, and also... You know, Choi, he eventually did get signed and he's had some success as a writer. Uh, it looked like that might, his career might blow up too. Um, Kid Rock happened to be in a different studio and liked a song and rapped on it. And there was like this energy, you know, he was hanging around the music mafia people, which were really, you know, big and rich. They were really huge at the time. And, um, and so it looked like this is going to take off too. And, and, and I could just feel that Tucson there's no like going back from that going you know working with someone like vance and richard dodd mixed it um you know these people that are still a huge part of, of of what i've learned and that i still ask advice for and take projects to when i can um yeah um i just knew it was time and and actually i don't know if you know this but i was in a band that this same man I mentioned, Jeb Schoonover, put together called the Hacienda Brothers. Yeah, and they cut a couple records with Dan Penn. Yeah, too. so I cut the original demos uh, as, as a band. Some and three of the songs are on the record, their first record, and I was like one of the Hacienda Brothers. That happened the same time as the Blackbird sessions that I was telling you about and that I talked about earlier, and that was a career decision I had to make because I was supposed to only be here. In Nashville for 10 days to make that record and they said we can't they actually said we don't want to make this without you please stay for the six weeks and we'll pay you what you need to be paid and I had to I actually had to leave the Hacienda Brothers to make that project happen because Dan Penn who lives here in Nashville was headed to uh, Tucson to produce the real record um, not not the demos that I did and and I, but it just felt right. I'm like, this, this is kind of where I belong. So yeah. that really, so when you talked about the studio stuff, that really solidified it. Like, oh no, this is where I'm really going to learn something. And that was hard because I love Dan Penn's old stuff. And I, I and that, that record wasn't that old either. The Do Right Woman. I mean, I, I love Dan Penn. Yeah, that was hard to say no to, but this just felt right staying in Nashville and making that record. Yeah. So, after you moved here, you started doing a lot of freelancing and producing and engineering a lot of stuff. But you also, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, you joined Kevin Costner's band. Yeah, so I got a call from John Coyneman, who's somebody I met in Nashville, somebody that I also had heard about. Uh, he had worked with a guy named um, James Infeld, that wrote a bunch of songs, a really cool record. I can't remember what the record was na named, but James Enfield played every song on it. And it, it had a really good buzz, at least in the community I was in. And and it was on, um, what's the label in Germany? Uh, Bear? Uh, Bear Family? 
Yeah, maybe they re- release a lot of old 50s music yeah. and new music. And they released his album. It must be that. He's he's plays in the Mavericks now. He's like, uh, he's great. Um, but John Coyneman and James Enfelt wrote a lot of songs. And I was, this was at that same time when I was soul music, Lucinda Williams. I was really discovering the importance of songs. Um, so I knew that name and I knew people that knew John Coyneman. Anyway, so... John Coinman made the record with John Coinman, who lives in Tucson. After I'd moved to Nashville, he um, called me and said, "Hey, um, Kevin, love Kevin Costner really loves the record that that we made, and he's actually gonna wants to do music again, and we're he wants to play a lot of those songs and kind of sound like that. He loves that kind of a blueprint for for his music, and so it started off just playing a few shows, and I don't think anybody expected we'd." play for 10 years and yeah. make make albums and, and and do some soundtrack work and you got to record some of it here too yeah we cool. recorded we co- recorded a number of songs here for sure and then a lot and then i've of course done a lot upstairs in my in my little overdub studio as well yeah what are some of the productions of yours that stand out to you well, the, the stuff with Kevin, the Hatfield and McCoy stuff that we did, um, some of which is, was in the, 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 the miniseries Hat, you know, called Hatfield and McCoy's that was on the History Channel. Um, that's some of my favorite stuff, and I think some of Kevin's best stuff, too. And I mean, eventually an album was released of that stuff. And I mean, and I, I really enjoy working with Carl Bremel. And you did a couple or three albums with him? done two albums and and one one whole record here and then one of them was uh, at my old garage studio when I lived in Inglewood before before I was here at Creative Workshop but most of them were I guess most of it was done here at Creative Workshop um, I don't know I can't think about it yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's other stuff I like you know that I've done but and, and with Kevin Costner you got to travel quite a bit too you went over to europe to perform and you mentioned earlier that when you started out that you mainly lived to be on stage yeah but is it fair to say that now there might be a little bit of a shift that you might even feel more comfortable in the studio well i still feel i feel very comfortable on stage yeah i love it it does it you know it as, as someone that may be more of an introvert, like I don't feel like an introvert on stage. It feels very safe um, and, and just and feels very sacred. Like I really, it's, a, it's a, a true gift to be able to be on stage and play music. So I still love that. And I love to travel a, a little bit. You know, I've got two kids. So being away all the time isn't something um, I want, but you know, now and then, Especially, and Kevin has kids, you know, Park Chisholm has kids, it's another band member. Um, you know, we don't, we don't need to be away all the time. Yeah. And, and the studio, I mean, I, yeah, I've been in love with the studio for, yeah, 15 years at least now. And another artist you got to work with is uh, John Oates of Hall & Oates. How yes. did that come, come about? That's he was at my wedding in Tucson. Um, my ex-wife Gwen, uh, her best friend from since elementary school, 
uh, married John Oates, maybe over 20 years ago, a long time ago. And so John and I knew each other, but we never really did music or talked about music. And actually, until he started coming to Nashville a lot, which was um, around the t whenever that Hatfields recording was, because he loved the Hatfield stuff. And, uh, and I don't remember if we ran into each other. He just called me and just said, I love that Hatfield stuff. We ought to write something. And so we got together and we've written a number of songs together and I was able to produce a few songs for him. I think we, we did one of them here. We recorded the whole thing here. I've seen him come in and out for a while there for sure. Yeah, and you talk about a, a, a generous, sweet man and talent for days. And, and also a guy that is not narrow-minded musically. You know, he is so, I mean, he's been to the pinnacle of success, right? You know, and he is, that's, I think, so important with music and the people that, that I love working with, no matter, no matter their age, young or old, there is just an excitement for the mystery. And, um, you know, that it, that music is, is a mystery and it is a mystery that it is fun to jump into and be a part of, you know, and yeah, and a gift. Yeah. And you just mentioned that you've not only recorded him, but you've also collaborated on songwriting. Mm -hmm. and that's one thing we haven't touched on as much you're also a songwriter and how is like how would you like how are you look at yourself it's like do you have something that you feel that's my strongest suit or or is it just like one is an extension of the other i always feel like you know there's so many intersections between playing producing and writing with with artists you might be producing that it's kind of almost one becomes one in a way. I, I agree with you on that. And, and I think where my career is kind of, it's, it's like starting music, you just, I've just always followed without, without a plan, good or bad. You know, like this feels right, this feels right. You know, it felt right to move to, move to Austin and go, okay, I'm gonna sing now. And um, I'm going to write, I should write the songs that I'm going to sing. And that was, uh, you know, take some fearlessness because uh, I still don't really like my singing, but it, but it got me to the next point. I feel like each thing like, okay, I might not be good at this for a while, but I'm going to learn something from it. And if it feels like what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to forget about the fear and just go for it. And so, you know, even to touring and, and playing clubs, but I, I hit a point doing that, doing my own career. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not inspired anymore. I'm not, I'm more a, a introvert. I'm not the life of the party. And I reached a point where I don't even know what I want to say to people, you know? So like each, it's been a natural process of like letting something go and opening up for something new and following it. And so I think what I've discovered is where, where, where I can shine the best is, is just collaborating with people. I love that. So that makes sense why producing and songwriting are kind of the main, my main things these days and, and, and helping people find their vision and, and also getting to a bigger place than one person can. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about, about collaborating. So th that would be my favorite. And I think that's like what I'm best at and what makes me the happiest when it isn't 
my idea or even somebody else's idea where it's like, where did this come from? I don't know. Thank you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, thank you, God, for putting me with this person and and for something bigger than both of us to happen. But have you ever thought about making another record as an artist now that you've, you know, progressed in the studio and as a songwriter? It would give you all you needed to do another one, technically. Yeah, I mean, I have my... I think about that every now and then. So if I'm in between projects and bored, I'll, I'll think of it and I'll chip away at something. Um, but then it never just never feels right because I just don't have enough of a, a, a plan to, to do anything. And so maybe I will sometime. But I, I don't know. I was just thinking about it this morning. Like, oh, because my mom was... <laughs> my mom... Because my mom was like, don't forget to do your own music. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, I just, I'm not feeling it right now. And if I'm not feeling it, why should I do it? Because like, you got to feel it. Yeah. And so uh, we're almost at the end here. And uh, I'll just kind of wrap it up with uh, what's next for you? Is there anything exciting coming up that you look forward to? Well, I mean, all of it. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I've got three co-writes next week. I can't wait to hear what happens. It's a mystery. I don't know. The mystery of it is exciting. And so writing, I've been writing more using my BMG uh, admin deal. So I've been writing and and it's been fun to like have some songs move some people and, and maybe something will happen with those songs. There's some good stuff floating there. Working with a young band called Waker, that, that's just exciting because they are passionate and to see the way they keep improving and improving. Um, I mean, really, it's just just keep growing. You know, staying young as I get older. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for me being my guest today and for being a great friend. And I wish you just all the best with all your future projects. All right. Thank you. This was the 19th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it in Los Angeles as well as Buzz Kaysen's Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. Ah!